Hello and welcome to Switzer TV Property. I'm Peter Switzer. Now Martin North of DFA has raised doubts about the credibility of house price numbers, which are looking pretty strange given the fact that we're supposed to be in the mother of all recessions. Then leading house price monitor Tim Lawless of CoreLogic questions those questioning his numbers. Then ANU's Matthew Gray identifies a rising housing crisis for both owners of houses with mortgages and renters. And finally, M Squared Capital's Paul Mirren asks, is this really a recession? Without any further ado, let's cross to Martin North. Well, house prices have recently come out and I always like to catch up with Martin North for sometimes a contrarian point of view. Uh, and I think Martin uh, particularly worries about being held, as a, held up as a contrarian. Martin, thanks for joining us. <laughs> Hello, Peter. Uh, number of scenarios, mate. A number of scenarios. <laughs> yes, we need a number of scenarios. You, you've seen the core logic numbers out today. What do they tell you? Well, the top level numbers show that there have been further falls, of course. Uh, Melbourne and Perth down 1.1, uh, some of the others down uh, a little less than that, and a couple of, like Darwin, up, up a little bit. Uh, but the uh, trajectory, of course, over the last couple of months has been down a little. Uh, of course, the interesting question is, what do they really tell you? Because obviously these are high-level numbers and uh, they perhaps are based on a series of, of inputs, which are not totally clear always, but nevertheless, trajectory is down and I think the expectation is probably more down ahead. Mm. Uh, Martin, do you see anything in the numbers that tells you that this might escalate or that, see, remember, and you recall, I think even the CBA put out the worst case scenario when we were at the most scariest aspect of the coronavirus, a 30% house price fall. Um, is there anything in these numbers that make you think there's a possibility? Well, um, you know, on, on the positive side, transaction levels are up a bit from where they were, although still a bit down from where they were previously. The real question is unemployment, right? What's going to happen to unemployment? If unemployment uh, comes back relatively quickly, we might get away with relatively limited falls. But if unemployment really continues to rocket up, such that effectively the banks are unable to just extend loans and uh, you know everything will be fine that's when we're going to watch to see what happens so i think september is going to be an important test but i really think it's probably going to be longer than that you know mm. victoria tells us that the virus isn't over yet and that means that the economic impact is going to be significant and long term um i think the other thing to, to highlight is there's a big debate about whether auction clearance rates are up or not and what that really means. Um, my data suggests that, yeah, clearance rates may be um, still pretty low and the transaction volumes are still significantly low from where they were. So that's another thing I'll be looking at in terms of whether there will be any further negative news there as well. So, you know, it's early days and it's hard to put all the pieces together, but I want to come back to the key point. These high level numbers don't tell you much because no. there's what's going on on the ground down in individual postcodes, individual types of property is massively varying. You know, there are some postcodes where prices are doing quite well. There are others where they are significantly down. And, and it's that story, I think, of, of more granularity that we need to get to, to really try and unpick this. If you then overlay where, where COVID has actually had an impact on employment, there is a correlation between the prices already falling, high mortgage stress, and high access to JobKeeper. 
So that interesting formulation will be one to watch, I think. Mm. So when you say high level, some people might not understand exactly what you mean. Um, what you're saying is that if we just look at the, the average of these numbers right across the board, they might look better. But when you start breaking them down into postcodes, as you pointed out, there can be quite some serious stories that get lost in the mix. Yeah, so absolutely, go granular, but in, you know, units versus houses and, and all of those things. The other point to make is, of course, that the settlement duration, you know, often it's 48 to, to, to 60 days, in other words, a couple of months, before you actually know what the real price was. Remember that about half of auctions don't declare the price on the day uh, in any public forum. So that means that there's a lot of questioning about how soon is the data real and uh, you know when does it actually flow through first point second point is um you know there are lots of um, properties that are being still withdrawn from the market and uh, you know what we're seeing also is that has an impact on the, the prices but in some postcodes and i you know I, I look over at western sydney or up in north ride there are significant numbers of properties listed very significant price falls look in the apartment markets in those areas it's looking very sick mm. Well, on the subject of apartments, this is, a, I guess, a curveball for the property sector, which was never, ever thought about, that if we miss out on a whole lot of international tourists who used to use Airbnb, a lot of this Airbnb properties, properties are actually coming on the market. Clearly, it is going to affect the price of you know, comparable uh, apartments. Are you seeing any numbers there that makes you think that uh, this could push overall prices down? Yeah, I'm looking at this quite carefully. I've done some very deep dives now on the property investment sector and uh, specifically unpicked the uh, Airbnb segment of it. Um, there's been a significant rise in numbers of uh, Airbnb uh, rentals who are basically switching to try and actually find longer term tenants. When they can't do that, they've got an immediate crisis essentially because they cannot make the economics work. Um, about half of the increase in property investors intending to, to sell, up to about 13% of property investors now based on our numbers, half of that movement up over the last couple of months has been from the Airbnb sector. Right. So I think that's a big deal. And that's again, not uniform across the country, right? But there are particular areas um, some of the tourist spots, um, you know, I'm looking up in Queensland, for example, and some of the areas close into the CBD, particularly in Melbourne and also in and around Sydney, um, a lot of properties look to be coming on the market. Property investors are really getting quite uh, skittish at the moment, and uh, many of them are, are questioning what they're going to do, remembering, of course, that the um, whole proposition of property investment is based on I may not make much from the rentals, but hopefully I'll make it on the capital. If the capital growth over the next two or three years isn't there, then in fact, property investment looks a bit sick. Mm. And it's interesting uh, because you, know, you start off talking about unemployment and clearly if our economy um, does defy the infection negativity, which is now coming out of Victoria, unfortunately, but th there is this possibility, Martin, I wonder, I'm wondering whether you've thought about this, I've seen, for example, a friend of mine has a, a place in the mountains. She's booked out for two or three months. People are desperate to go on holidays. And they're probably the people who want to go to Europe, but they can't go to Europe. So they're going to the mountains. They're probably going to the sea. Uh, Queensland has been shutting them out until recently. But 
what's also going to be interesting is that a lot of these Airbnb properties you're talking about would have been people who have been letting, letting them out to foreigners who now can't get there. So those sorts of people are going to depend on a lot of interstate uh, tourism. Hopefully, like, Melbourneites might come to Sydney and vice versa. That's going to be the, the only thing that will save those people because it, it doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. House prices or unit prices will fall. Well, yeah, I mean, it will, it will hopefully throw a bit of a lifeline. But, you know, if you look at Melbourne 3000, right, that has one of the highest proportions of Airbnbs. And it also has one of the highest proportions of investment properties under stress at the moment for the very reason. So, so you know, maybe people were thinking of going down to Melbourne 3000. Will you now, given what's happened with regards to the, uh, the, the localised virus outbreaks? Maybe not. But, uh, you know, it, it may possibly give us a, a leg up. And one other point just on the employment I, I should have mentioned and will say now is it's shifting. So we're seeing some of those um, early workers now coming back to work, but the more substantive unemployment is now in corporate land where in fact the big job cuts are coming through. If you look at the uh, consulting sector, for example, a lot of consultants suddenly are being made out of work. My view is that we're now at the next, next wave of unemployment and that is more substantial and structural relative to the earlier part of the cycle. So, again, another reason to be a bit cautious, right? Mm. Is, you know, you've suggested that the, the core logic numbers don't tell you enough. Are there, apart from your own numbers, are there any other numbers that you look at that you think give you a, a, a better sense of what's happening to house prices? Well, I actually look at all the numbers because I think that, you know, as long as people understand what they do and what they don't tell you, right? And, and I'll give you an example. You know, if, if a high-level index says property prices in Sydney went up 10% in the last year, say, theoretically, that doesn't mean that your property in your particular part of Sydney necessarily does. So it's important to go granular. Of course, REA actually does have on realestate.com.au, um, you know, trend data down to a postcode and suburb level. I look at that data, that's quite helpful. Um, domain has stuff too. Um, but it actually is really, really difficult to get really good, accurate, granular data. And in fact, I end up speaking to local agents who actually have the very best feel about what's going on. And quite often their view of what's going on is completely different from what the indices are saying. So all I'm saying is just be a little bit cautious and careful. And of course, caveat here too, is that uh, the, uh, the ABS who publishes the uh, official statistics uses CoreLogic data too. So that's in itself quite an interest of, interesting observation in terms of the way that the data flows go. I'm very keen to get granular and to get local to really understand what's going on. And very few of the indices really take you there. Martin North, thanks for joining us. Good to talk to you. Mark North from DFA Analytics. Well, we've got another sneak preview on what's going on in the house price sector. And to talk about it is Tim Lawless from CoreLogic. Mate, good to see you. Good morning, Peter. Thanks for having me on your program. My pleasure. Now, Tim, let's have a look at the numbers. This is your CoreLogic Home Value Index. So national home prices fell by 0.7% in June. I'm told that's the biggest decline in 16 months. Yeah, that's, that's right. And uh, it follows a 0.4% decline over the previous month in May and relatively flat conditions in April. So it does look like we are seeing some momentum building in this downturn which probably isn't all that surprising considering uh, the uncertainty that we're in. Mm. But when you look at some of the other peripheral data, 
Uh, we are seeing some more positive signs as well in the fact that transaction numbers have started to lift over the past two months. Auction clearance rates have stabilized around the long-term average of 60%. Uh, and of course, we're seeing a real dynamic between different cities. You know, Melbourne seems to be the weakest market at the moment, whereas markets like Canberra certainly haven't seen much change at all in the sense that values are still at record highs. So, Tim, is there a new uh, important variable for you guys to work out what's probably going to happen to prices, and that variable is the coronavirus effect? Uh, well, well, clearly that's, that's impacting on everything at the moment, and uh, I'm not sure if we've seen the full effect of the coronavirus uh, element just yet, considering there has been so much stimulus being pumped into the economy. We've seen uh, the potential for, say, urgent or distressed sales has become pretty small, considering that the repayment holidays are in effect. So I think everybody acknowledges that as we move through this period, there's, there's a lot of support that's helping to uh, hold prices or at least insulate prices. But as we get towards the end of the year and a lot of these uh, stimulus measures or support measures start to either taper or expire, that will be the real test for the market. And that's where, it, we, where we are expecting there probably will be some more urgent sales or uh, uh, more forced sales coming in the marketplace uh, over time. Uh, um, I, I guess the interesting issue is that Sydney and Melbourne for quite some time, seemingly, and you can correct me if I'm wrong because you watch it more closely than me, they seem to have moved in the same kind of direction, nearly with the same kind of upward or downward fall in price. But it seems to me, and from my reading of what's going on in Victoria, and not just even over the last week or so when um, infections rose, Victorians have seemed more, more afraid of the coronavirus than Sydney-siders and, and Queenslanders, uh, Brisbaneites. And as a consequence, like their, their, their um, property numbers seem a little bit more negative. Is this something you've noted and, and maybe thought about? Yeah, I haven't necessarily put it down to being more afraid of the virus. I'm not sure if you can prove that up, but uh, clearly that they are going through a second wave at the moment, which uh, if they don't get it under control, will uh, will be debilitating for the economy. If we see a, a second round of, of lockdowns or social distancing measures being implemented, clearly that's not good for the economy or the housing market. But there's other factors in Melbourne that I think can, can help to explain some of the, uh, the additional weakness we're seeing there. For starters, Melbourne does have more exposure to overseas migration is, is one aspect, uh, particularly overseas student numbers, which have pretty much just stopped. We've also seen based on the ABS payroll data that Melbourne has had a larger impact in job losses um, around those sort of food and accommodation services sector, the arts and recreational services. So like broadly hospitality workers, mm. notably that doesn't really have a direct impact on housing demand as such. Most of these workers would be renters. So it probably indirectly affects rental demand more so than buying, uh, buying a home, but of course, the indirect effect there comes to investors. We're already starting to see some of the inner Melbourne suburbs have seen more than a 40% uplift in rental listings, highlighting that there's been this upswing of rental supply at a time when rental demand has been diminished quite significantly mm. due to the overseas migration phenomenon, as well as local students are generally studying from home, not from uni. 
And then you've got that overlay of weak labour market conditions for renters across the top of that. Is there also an Airbnb effect, Tim, that if, you know, I must admit, if I, if I owned a, an apartment in Sydney and Melbourne that attracted a lot of foreign tourists and all of a sudden I, I, I listened to Alan Joyce and he says, don't expect uh, international travel to open up for a year, I'd be saying, oh, no, I might try and whack my apartment back into the, the full-time rental market as opposed to the Airbnb market. Is there any of that going on? Well, absolutely. It's, it's hard to, to prove up. I haven't seen any real data on that, but it's, it stands to reason that if you have an Airbnb property, you're reliant on demand coming from, from travellers, be it domestic or, or overseas. So those areas that do have a large proportion of Airbnb or short-term rental stock, clearly a lot of that would have transitioned into the permanent rental market. And that's one of the elements pushing up supply and that's being compounded, of course, by those inner city markets where there's been a recent history of a lot of new high-rise apartment construction that's typically been geared towards either investors or uh, student accommodation or, uh, or rental accommodation. So it's a bit of a perfect storm for some of those inner city rental markets. Some of the more, I guess, regional tourism-driven markets where you'd expect there would also be a lot of Airbnb or short-term rental properties probably have gone through something similar, but you'd expect those major at least uh, it, um, close regional hubs that are popular with domestic tourism will probably see much less impact from uh, from that addition of, of demand as we see domestic tourism hopefully starting to, to pick up. Okay, let's just fast forward to, towards the end of the year because you've already alluded to it. Um, and, and, and your um, angle was, well, if um, the unwinding of government support um, leads to a bit of, I guess, um, stress, there might be a lot more supply put on the market. And it seems to me that what you're suggesting there is uh, it could lead to more price softness. Is that what you're implying? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, um, there's a lot of moving parts here, of course. So we've already seen banks hinting at the fact that they could be extending some of their forbearance policies, uh, which are the repayment holidays. Uh, Personally, I think that will probably be much more individually targeted rather than a, a blanket offering of, uh, of delaying your, your home, home loan repayments. There's also the issue of the fiscal cliff. So the, the government stimulus being wound back towards the end of September. Uh, I think already we're, we're seeing a lot more debate around how that's going to work. Is it going to be pulling the rug out, so to speak? I'd be highly doubtful of that. I think it will be much more, much more of a tapered removal of that stimulus and perhaps seeing the stimulus being much more targeted towards specific industries that are going to have a longer legacy from, from COVID. Mm. Um, tourism, aviation services, to some extent hospitality services are probably all legitimate um, uh, sectors where that stimulus will need to be extended. Mm. And I guess the third element of, of how the market responds is, well, how, how strong or how weak is the economy mm. at this stage? I think it's encouraging to see, uh, at least from the Reserve Bank governor, positioning the Australian economy trajectory is somewhere between the best case scenario and the central case scenario. Definitely tracking better than what anybody would have expected, say in, in late March or early April. So hopefully that's all adding up to uh, that fiscal cliff and the removal of, um, of mortgage leniency, hmm. not being too stressful around late September, early October. But it's reasonable to expect that we are going to see more urgent sales coming into the marketplace. Eventually, mm. uh, debt holders will have to, to face up to their debt and start repaying. 
Um, and, and when we do start seeing those leading C uh, conditions expiring, I think that's where we'll probably, or even earlier than that, start to see particularly highly leveraged investors starting to offload some of their properties. Mm. Uh, Tim, uh, I, I figure there, there must be some people out there who say, well, I do want to sell, but this is such a crappy time to sell because everyone's scared and some people aren't sure about their jobs, aren't sure about pay rises in the future, aren't sure about how the banks are going to treat you, all these uncertainties. There must be a lot of people who are potential sellers who are just going to oh, I'll wait till the end of the year and hopefully things will be looking good and I'll do it then. Uh, are you thinking like me that there might be a, a big supply of property put on the market in the sp spring sales period? I'm not too sure because the, the trends at the moment are, aren't quite exactly that. We're actually mm. seeing the number of new listings coming into the marketplace is bounced back to a little bit higher than what it was a year ago. Mm. Uh, uh, we're starting to see, uh, well, since, since the beginning of May through to the end of June, we've seen about a 45% increase in fresh stock being added to the market. But the important element there is that total listing numbers are actually still diminishing, suggesting that uh, that absorption rate is uh, is very healthy. Uh, there's there's more buyers out there than stock being added to the market. So our internal research on that, uh, we actually put a research note out on it um, recently, was that for every new listing coming on the market, there's 1.3 buyers, which is reflecting that, that strong rate of absorption. Mm. Um, another element of that, I guess, that reinforces it would be what we're seeing in, in transactional activity across the market is now back to where it was pre-COVID as well. So we saw that 33% drop in market activity through April, which aligns really well with uh, the, the sharp drop in consumer sentiment. And then as we saw consumer confidence improving through, through May and June, we've also seen uh, housing sales rising about 20% through May and now about 30% through June, taking it back to where it was in, in February, so mm. pre-COVID. So there's some good signs there that buyers are coming back, they're taking advantage of very low interest rates, maybe some good buying conditions out there as well. It's uh, spring, uh, I kind of agree with you in the sense that that's normally when we'd start to see an upwards trajectory and listing numbers coming on the market. So that once again will be a real test that if we do start to see more stock coming on the market than normal, will we see buyer demand mm. picking up to, uh, to meet that? And the, 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 probably the, the best signpost will be what happens with consumer confidence mm. at that time. Uh, Tim, um, what about, uh, I've, I've been interviewing Martin North recently and he, he was saying that, or inferring that the, the bigger numbers that you report cover up um, a lot of postcodes that really are, you know, troubled at the moment, and and he was arguing that you know you, you're better off looking at um, house prices in a more granular kind of way. What do you think about that uh, analysis? Yeah, I mean, there's there's one way to look at that in the sense that uh, the macro view is is extremely important. If you're an individual property buyer, then clearly you're very much interested in what's happening at the suburb or the postcode or, or the microcosm. For a policymaker, that uh, the macro view is much more important. I mean, I think this is this is the the commentator that was suggesting prices weren't rising through the second half of 2019. So personally, uh, I don't put any credit into, into what's coming out of that um, that channel. Hmm. So at the moment, we are seeing very clearly housing prices are falling. We are seeing a lot of diversity across the different industry segments, sorry, the, the different market segments being 
for example, the, the most expensive of the marketplace is clearly leading this downturn, we can start to look at the marketplace in much more granular levels. And, and we do that every day. If you look at the different uh, sub-regions across Sydney and Melbourne, for example, it seems to be the inner city markets seem to be the most weakest. Whereas your outer fringing markets seem to be holding up a little bit better. That's typically where first home buyers are more active. Then you can look around the regional markets, those major regional centres, either side of, say, Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane, seem to be holding up much better as well. That's your, your Newcastles and, and Wollongongs, outside of Sydney, um, Geelong, Ballarat, Bendigo and Melbourne and the Gold Coast and Sunshine Coast, um, outside of Brisbane, seem to be quite resilient. And, and maybe that's a factor of just their lifestyle component or more people being able to work from home. Hopefully that's a legacy of COVID-19. Mm seeing demand holding up in those areas uh, uh, more strongly. One last one, mate. Uh, there's a story out in the papers about um, off-the-plan uh, problems, about 10% of um, potential settlements haven't gone through uh, for a variety of reasons. Are, are you seeing this as being a significant problem for the sector? Absolutely. And uh, it's it's always been, been a high-risk sector of the marketplace. Any Any sort of asset where you're have a very long settlement period between the contract price and the settlement date, and, and often that's, that's several years for an off-the-plan apartment sale, is going to be high risk. And uh, just on our own data, when we look at the number of, or the proportion of valuations for off-the-plan apartment settlements, in Sydney and Melbourne, we're still seeing more than half of those valuations at the time of settlement are less than the contract price. Mm. Around about a quarter are coming in less than 10% of the contract price or 10% under the contract price, mm. meaning those buyers are probably going to have to significantly top up their deposits in order to meet their loan to valuation ratio requirements from the lenders. So when you consider that vacancy rates in that um, inner city high-rise unit markets are starting to rise quite quickly, rental listing numbers are very high, rental demand has fallen off, I think they're going to struggle to find uh, investors uh, for that particular sector of the market. And probably, of course, when we look at construction, generally construction of high-rise apartments is very much reliant on getting a quota, typically 100% of pre-sales. I think that's going to be very challenging for most developers of that high-rise investment-grade stock. Hmm. Tim, uh, thanks for joining us on the program. Thanks, Peter. Well, a recent survey by the Australian National University has shown that one in seven Australians may be unable to pay their mortgage or rent on time. Once October comes and the JobKeeper and JobSeeker payments end or are changed. Talking to us now is Matthew Gray, Director of ANU Centre for Social Research. Thanks for joining us, Matthew. You're welcome. So what are the age demographics uh, really experiencing the highest amount of housing stress? So it depends whether you're looking at people who are renting or people with a mortgage. But amongst renters, it's very clearly 18 to 24-year-olds. Hmm. Um, and there are elevated rates of uh, not being able to pay your, your rent on time amongst all age groups, but particularly 18 to 24. With mortgage holders, uh, it's more spread across the age distribution, but a particular problem sort of in the in uh, the prime age, I guess, of sort of 35 to 55, uh, mm. particular problems with mortgage, um, which is what you'd expect. Uh, the you know, For young people, um, if you look at overall, either having trouble paying your rent or your mortgage, the proportion having trouble declines with age. Hmm. So it's highest among young people. 
Yeah, and when you think about it, you, you talk about that cohort 30, 30 odd to, to 50. Well, in that first half, the 30 to 40 section, invariably younger people take on enormous responsibilities like marriage, a mortgage, kids turn up to terrorise their life. You couldn't have a greater perfect storm and potentially a housing crisis issue. Yes, and then people losing their jobs or having their hours reduced who would yeah. never have really expected that to happen. Yeah. In numbers, like just hasn't happened for yeah. many, many years. Uh, yeah, and th th they've got all the additional responsibilities of the costs of children and so on. Mm. And some of them, of course, also have ageing parents who they also try to help. Yeah, yeah. Housing stress, how do you guys define that? So we've defined it as not being able to pay your rent or your mortgage on time over the last three months. Um, so, 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 you know, normally people will prioritise their housing expenses. Mm. Um, you know, you're pretty keen to pay your, your mortgage or your rent. Um, and so that's how we've done it, rather than how it's sometimes done more than a proportion of your income or something. This is an actual direct measure of having had trouble paying. Yeah. And, and how long have you been tracking uh, housing stress? And if, if you've got a bit of time up your sleeve, what does this current level of stress look like compared to other times? So we've been tracking it for the same group of people in April and May, and we found a very big increase from April to May, hmm. an increase from about 7% across the population as a whole to 15%, the one in seven uh, figure. We have data from not directly comparable from other data sources like the, uh, the uh, Melbourne Institute Household Income and Labor Dynamics in Australia study. And that asks the question about not being able to pay your housing costs over the previous 12 months. And that's getting right, something like about 8%. Um, so by May, we double that and they're asking about over a 12 month period rather than a three month period. So it's dramatically higher than it has been, uh, certainly since about 2000. Are you in a position to, to speculate um, what are the factors that are gonna make it worse and what are the factors that are gonna make it better? So JobKeeper and JobSeeker have clearly made quite a difference. I mean, they're putting substantial amounts of money into the pockets of households um, particularly in the bottom half of the income distribution. And we do find that uh, there have been quite substantial increases in the incomes for some lower income households, particularly the bottom 10%, but right up to about the midpoint of the income distribution. The big income losses have occurred in the top half of the income distribution. Um, and that's because of the you know, increases, effectively unemployment benefit, job keeper. Um, the government policies are also protecting people from being evicted. Uh, so there's a moratorium on evictions from rental properties and banks are uh, appearing to be quite, uh, I'd say generous in, in, in <laughs> renegotiating. It's not a word we're used to really, is it? No, <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, I mean, they're not gonna do that forever. Hmm. They are gonna have to, I mean, now banks don't want a dramatic drop in house prices, of course, so that will temper their behavior, I guess, as well as sort of the, trying to do the right thing. But um, so a combination of when landlords are going to need to get rent, uh, banks are going to start to at some point have to you know, get the mortgage payments. Um, and it's all going to depend on the economy. You know? mm. If employment remains low and job losses and hours losses remain high, uh, which most people think will happen you know, for at least an extended period, um, people were running down their reserves. Um, I do think that there is going to be significant pressure on the housing market and people, well, people's ability to afford their accommodation and also on the market. 
Have you been able to um, uh, look for geographic differences in housing stress? We have to some degree. It's not. It's something we could do more on. Uh, but it is higher in capital cities, hmm. uh, which is what you'd expect, I guess. Hmm. Uh, but uh, it is, uh, we can look at state differences. We can't break it down by a local government area or something like that. We just yeah. don't have a big enough survey. But we can look at uh, you know, difference between states and so on. But there's, yeah, big differences by uh, between capital city and non-capital. Hmm. Uh, it is higher in lower, uh, particularly rental stress is, uh, concentrated in lower socioeconomic status areas. Hmm. Uh, not so clear for mortgage, uh, where even you know, the, you know, the uh, second highest income, uh, sorry, second highest according to socioeconomic disadvantage, um, have quite high rates of mortgage stress as well. So it's not just in some of the, in the poorer areas, um, but yeah. Hmm. So, so obviously um, one, suggestion to government that you'd make would be be very careful about pulling the job keeper and job seeker payments out too quickly even though they have locked into a date that date really should be I, I guess you're arguing flexible depending on what the level of unemployment is like yeah well from the perspective of the housing um, there'll be issues if it's pulled out and the economy is still uh, very um, depressed. Uh, but, you know, of course, governments have to balance, you know, the amount they're borrowing um, and, you know, the various demands on their budget. So it's obviously a difficult balance to strike between sort of acting almost like a shock absorber on household incomes and uh, what's going to be sustained um, longer term. But I think that from a housing market perspective, um, to pull it out is likely to put pretty significant pressure on people's housing affordability and I think on the housing market more broadly. Mm -hmm. Were you able to see what housing stress looked like in March and then compare it to April and June, uh, April, May and June, when JobKeeper was uh, introduced and, and JobSeeker no, was increased? No, we've not been able to look at that. Uh, we don't have the data for March. Uh, we've only got it for April and May. We will be going back to the same group of people in August, which will give us a pretty good indication. Uh, my sense is that it hadn't gone up all that much by April. Mm. You know, the housing stress has really kicked in between April and May. Mm. Uh, you know, the lockdowns really didn't start till well into May. Uh, I'm sure that you know, there were some uh, effects before the lockdowns actually started, mm. but it was really when the lockdown started that you, know, you saw the mass loss of jobs and uh, reductions in hours. That's when the JobKeeper and JobSeeker payments uh, mm. will have kicked in. And, right. and it wasn't particularly elevated in April. It's really by May, it's really between April and May that it's really kicked off as a problem. All right, Matthew. Well, I think we should check in with you again around um, September, October to see yes. if that's either on the rise or on the fall. Let's hope it is on the fall. Let's hope so. We'd love to do that. Yeah, Matthew. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Bye. Matthew Gray, Director of ANU uh, Centre for Social Research. Thanks, mate. Thanks. Good. Okay. Got what you needed. We'll, we'll send you a. From time to time, we catch up with the guys from M Square Capital to see what's going on at the coalface in the property sector. Uh, I'm talking to Paul Mirren today. Paul, good to see you, mate. Thanks, Peter. 
Now, you've written a piece um, for your clients, your newsletter, and uh, you basically pose the question, recession, what recession? Absolutely. What have you been smoking, mate? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Look, we have a lot of different type of investors, and one of the most common uh, conversations that I have with some of our investors is Mm. saying, when I was your age, Mm. um, and we were going through the last time we had a recession in Australia 30 years ago, my interest rate was 18%. I was having two jobs, unemployment yeah. was 10%, there was no job keeper, there yeah. was no job seeker, yeah. there was no uh, repayment holiday. If I missed a payment, I would lose my property. Yeah. Um, so um, Unemployment went over 11%. Yeah, yeah and, and that happened gradually. Mm. And while you were living through the recession, you didn't really see, um, you know, it, it was quite pessimistic mm. uh, and the mood was very different than it is right now. Yeah. So even though we're going through a health crisis, people are a bit more optimistic that once this once we get over this, yeah. uh, we should be getting back to normal pretty quickly. Okay. Now, you're in the property sector, but you're, you're also lending to people in business. And I know you've got a, a <laughs> preoccupation, <laughs> an infatuation with zombie companies. <laughs> so tell people yeah. what you mean by zombie companies and why is this an important issue for you? Look, we've been on your show um, four or five months ago, yeah. and we actually discussed the 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 difficulty or risk that we saw in the market lending to businesses that actually weren't profitable. Mm. Now, recently, they've used this terminology of zombie companies, and I've used it in an article as well. A zombie company is basically a company that's not profitable, Mm. and it continues to be in existence by having more debt. Mm. And as debt got cheaper and cheaper, these companies are getting more debt. Mm. And these zombie companies are your small businesses, And they're large businesses. Mm. They can be an airline as well. Yeah, well, well Virgin certainly yeah. was a dead airline walking there, wasn't it, until yeah. the recent takeover. So let's just talk then about you know, why is zombie companies, companies really important to you? Just for, for people who think, well, these guys yeah. are in the property space. What's the link between a, <laughs> a, a zombie company and what you guys do? So even though we're a direct lender, yeah. and, and so therefore what a direct lender is, or we're a direct lender that will only lend money if we have a secured position against mm-hmm. a property. Yeah. So what does that actually mean? So if someone comes to us and says, look, I want to borrow from my business, but um, I have no security, we're out. We're not unsecured. Mm-hmm. But if they come to us and say, look, we want to borrow for our business and we have some security, mm-hmm. we're more than help- happy to assist as long as it makes logical sense. Mm-hmm. Now, we're not in the business of selling people's assets. Mm-hmm. So just having... The, the property as security mm. and ticking that box is also not sufficient for us. Mm. We're, not, we're not in the business of selling other people's assets. Mm. We want to make sure that the people who borrow from us are, have successful businesses and they can grow mm. and there's commercial benefit. So when we look at a particular scenario as well, we say, what is the property? Do they have cash flow? Mm. And if they don't have cash flow, mm. we know that this, this is yeah. going to be a, a, a problem. Yeah. We look at character, mm. make sure they'll make the right decisions, they have competency. So we have a process to make sure that what we, people who we lend to is the highest level of success. But there's a backstop in the sense that you, you do get them to put up their residential property, which is good quality asset yeah. to be behind a, a loan of any kind. Absolutely. So for an investor, hmm. knowing when they invest through our fund, they have the peace of mind knowing at night that even if a business for any reason hmm. are, are unable to have the cash flow to support the mortgage payments, hmm they will make the decision themselves to put that property on the market and pay us back. Mm. But if, if an unlikely situation that we have to recover, mm. they know that they ha- have a, 
there's, the property market has to fall more than 30% for them to actually lose the capital and interest. Yeah. And that, that's why I wanted to lead you to that because um, if this property market, you know, the recession mm. should have led to you know, a, lot, a lot of people's thinking, it should have led to a, a substantial fall in house prices. And if your security is the value of a house, yeah. you, you potentially could have been at risk. What are you seeing for house prices at the moment? Well, you'd be watching them. We're watching it very, very closely. Mm. What I think uh, generally the consensus of the market is at the moment, I think everyone is quite surprised in relation to how resilient property, property prices are. Mm. So, as, we've, as we discussed last time we were on the show as well, mm. it was 0.5% uh, nationally the capital values have fallen. Mm. The figures came out last, mo uh, last month as well. There was only, it was less than half a percent uh, mm. for that particular month. So for property prices are very, very resilient, but we're not to say that it, may, that it will continue to fall over time mm. until, until uh, the economy is back on its feet, mm. until we get out of, you know, obviously, obviously we don't know the, the, the true essence of this is that we don't know the true damage of the economy at the moment because we've got job seeker, we've got job seeker, uh, job, job keeper. keeper. Mm. Um, uh, we don't know how many zombie companies are out there. Mm. So we see zombie companies all the time. You, but you we love don't saying zombie companies. Yeah, well. <laughs> but yeah. Um, we don't know the extent of them. And yeah. so the, the multiply effect of these zombie companies not being able mm. to employ um, their staff um, going forward, there will be an adjustment period. But you must have been happy when you heard the IMF tip our contraction would be at 4.5%. Yeah. The second lowest contraction in the world beyond South Korea. That's yeah. a good thing. And also we expected to rebound 4%. Of course, they're guessing, yeah. but at least the guessing is all looking favourable for us. And I therefore justifies what you're saying, recession, yeah. what recession when you compare it to, to the 90s. Um, people watching this would be thinking, um, do you think that the outlook for this market, and of, of us, other people in this program, um, when we come into the spring, if we do see the economy doing okay without mm. JobKeeper and without an elevated value of JobSeeker, that there'll be a lot more pro properties put on the market and the market will be healthier than it is now? Well, what we're seeing already the last two or three months, the, there's a bit more confidence. So mm. therefore, during the lockdown, we had, I think the, the amount of pro properties in Sydney that were at auction were about 250, 300. Yeah. Now it's actually ticking up uh, in the you know, mid 500s, mm. but the clearance rates are still staying around between 60 and 70 percent. Mm. That just sort of shows that there is a the healthy mechanics of the property market. What uh, what we need to acknowledge as well is that what we had in Sydney and Melbourne, we, more particularly, overnight we had an undersupply in property, mm. and then the day that we had the lockdown, we had an oversupply. Mm. And let me explain the mechanics there. Is that we had, in Sydney, we had 127,000 apartments that were permanent Airbnb apartments mm. that went on the permanent mar rental market. Mm. We had nearly half a million students. Now, I don't know how many of them have gone back overseas mm. uh, or stayed here. We, we don't have tourists at the moment. Mm. So we have all of this property infrastructure that are designed for student temporary visas um, that now are being absorbed for per permanent market. Mm. Um, so I think that we will still see a bit of a, uh, a decline. I, don't, mm. I can't see the uptick. Mm. Um, there is more confidence in selling your property at the moment. Um, but what I want to see is also how uh, those students are going to come back 
to, mm. to Sydney, Melbourne and, mm. and uh, the rest of the states it, as it's well. It's like a temporary structural change. I, I, I do know, and you might have the same information, that in some tourist areas where properties were not being rented Airbnb, yeah. they've now been booked out night yeah. after night. So there's going to be a lot of internal travel that will probably help all those Airbnb, but you're right, it seems like there will be an oversupply of rental properties and therefore rents will be down and prices should go with it. And it might be a little bit of an adjustment, yeah. but then you have to look at the difference between investment stock and an occupier. So from a coalface perspective, mm. when talking to uh, people on a daily basis, mm. they're saying that they still can't find an unoccupied property. Mm. So if, they, if you're in the market to buy your own personal house, yeah. and, then and that's the space market. you guys play in? The, the, the Look, pri uh, the, the primarily the, the security is residential property? Well, we, we, it, it could be any type of property as yeah. long as it's non specialized. Yeah. So what we really avoid is specialized security. So yeah. uh, the reason being is that when you have a bit of an adjustment in the property mm. market, um, that's where you can have the largest capital uh, depreciation of asset. Mm. So we, we stay away from it. So mm. majority of our um, transactions are secured by residential property, but we, can, we do industrial as well, yeah. um, uh, commercial property. But where the, the difference between us and probably other funds as well um, is that people can actually choose the security that they want to invest in. Mm. So there's a particular borrower, there's a set of cash flows, we've done all the due diligence. Mm. And so therefore the investor can hop in the car, depending which state they're in, mm. and they can actually go to the property and see it. Say, well, you know what, I've lent, I put $100,000 towards this particular investment, mm. and I know that property is worth a million dollars, and the boys have not lent more than $600,000 against that asset. Yeah. So that gives people a lot of security, peace of mind. They know they're getting the regular income every mm. single month. Mm. Um, and um, we've had our phone ringing more in the last, uh, last month mm. than the last two years in relation to investors wishing to get more information and invest in these type of assets as well. And Paul, the, the interest rates you guys pay, despite the fact you try to build in safety factors, is high compared to term deposits. Therefore, yeah. you're not as safe that yeah. you guys try your best to be as safe as you can be, despite yeah. the fact you're not government guaranteed. That, that, that's right. Mm. So irrespective of the government guarantee, mm. and mind you, if you have more than $250,000, you're not more or less yeah. exposed. Mm. But uh, yeah, uh, the investors know that they have specific security against particular assets, mm. um, and our returns start from about 6%. Mm. Um, and you know, there are different type of transactions depending on gearing and, and risk profile. You know, we have different type of transactions different terms uh, to meet people's requirements. And are there any examples that you've come across recently which basically explain to people listening now what the, the property market looks like to you? Uh, yeah, well look, we, we've, we've, got a, we've got a little, um, we've just set, we settled a couple of transactions the last two or three months. We're looking at a couple of new ones at the moment. Um, we're looking a little at, at a little shopping centre at the moment, mm. secured by an IGA 15 year lease. Mm. Um, we're going to be lending 65% against that particular asset mm. and giving roughly around 65 to 7% net return. Mm. So for, for investors, it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's a great asset because mm. they know that, that uh, it's COVID-19 proven, has a good track record mm. there, especially given through. They've never not uh, stopped paying the, the uh, mm. lease over that period of time. Yeah. And investors know that they can, um, they'll have their regular payments every single month from that investment. So okay, Thanks very much for coming to the program. No problem, thank you. And that was Paul Merrin from a company called M Squared Capital.